<laughs> All right. Um, we're in Romans chapter 9. We didn't quite finish the section last time that we uh, started, uh, that, that we were working in. <clears throat> the time ran... Thank you. Sorry, it's hard. It's all right. Yeah. Uh, the, uh, the section starts in Romans 9.1 and goes to verse 29. We got to verse uh, 23 last time. So I need to pick up and finish that passage. In that passage, Romans 9, Paul has started to ask, ask the question, does Israel have any role in the plan of God? Is that terminated? Are all, the, are all the promises God made to Israel null and void now? And the answer is uh, given in five steps that start in 9-1 and go through uh, the chapter 11. Um, the first step is God has hardened Israel. Um, though he has saved some. And so I read there in Romans uh, 9 and verse uh, 24, the some include us. Um, Not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. Yes? So let me get our... uh, This is this uh, last section now on the screen. Um, there are vessels of, of mercy that God has prepared beforehand for glory. And that includes some Jews, as Paul will say in Romans 11. It includes me. I also am a Jew, he says. And uh, so th- this, this hardening is not complete. As in all other generations of Israel, there's a remnant according, as Paul will say in chapter 11, a remnant according to the election of grace. And the rest were hardened. Jim, if you would address in this, I've had an objection shown up to me many times, saying that election applies only to the nations, but not to individual people. <laughs> well, that would be the if if election related only to nations and not to people, then what are made what are nations made up of? And secondly, that would be the worst kind of of, of racism I can think of. God would be a racist. So if you want God to be a racist, that's fine, but. Paul is not saying that. He's saying he's one of those vessels of, of, of uh, mercy. And if that's the case, then it does refer to people. You, you, can't, um, you can't try to get around that. Well, you can try to get around it. You just can't do it. Um, so uh, we're, we're faced with this, and Paul is going to uh, elaborate on this till, till verse 29. He'll quote a series of verses from the Old Testament. First from Hosea, so verse 25, as it is, as even uh, in Hosea he says, I will call that people my people who were not a people, and her who was not beloved I will call beloved. Uh, And it shall be in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they shall be called the sons of the living God. Well, that's right out of Hosea chapter 1, and there the plan of God is to save Israel. This is the astonishing thing I can't quite get over in, in Hosea. I don't know how recently you've read Hosea, but um, um, the, the reality is you know, do you know the opening, how, how Hosea, Hosea opens? Move your heads. No, okay. Uh, first thing God says to, to Hosea is I want you to go marry a woman who's a, 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 a prostitute. 
and uh, we had debates in school whether that was uh, that was what she was when she when he married her or that's what she became wouldn't it be immoral to marry a prostitute there's nothing say that, uh, in scripture about that are you with me yes you do know who Rahab was you know whose genealogy she's in okay so but so so yeah there's a monument anywhere to Rahab. You better tear it down. Oh, well, let's not go there. The, the issue for us is that um, Hosea and his and his marriage. Now hold on, folks. What's her name? Gomer. Gomer. Uh, a marine. Uh, <laughs> Hosea's and Gomer's relationship is going to model, be an example of God's relationship with Israel. And Israel is a people who have been, the very word uh, to commit harlotry is a standard word for involving in idolatry in the Old Testament. So uh, God's own wife is a prostitute. And so he is to have children of prostitution, and they named the boys, or the children, there are two boys and a girl, Jezreel, uh, uh, Lo-Ruhama, and Lo-Ami. Jezreel means God. It's interesting. Jezreel can mean two things. God sows, as it were, in land so it will produce a, a harvest. Or God scatters. And the initial meaning of the name, Jezreel, is God scatters. He's going to scatter them among the nations. Then there are two other children born, Lo-Ruhama and Lo-Ami. Lo-Ruhama means not beloved. And Lo-Ami means not my people. Uh, The word Ami, in fact, may mean something like not my relative. Um, But before the chapter is over, you're already coming to a point where God says yes but in the in the very place where it was said of her she is not beloved she will be called, called beloved and in the very place where it was said of of him he is not my people there it will be said he is my people are you with me here and then chapter 2 starts with uh, the divorce between um, Gomer and Gomer has abandoned Hosea and so She goes her own way, and God starts to pronounce judgment on Israel. And the interesting thing about the judgment is, you would think He would just start wiping them out. He would He would say, "I'm going to kill. I'm going to I'm going to send them to death." Instead, He says, "I'm going to make their life more and more difficult." And He uses language, "I'm going to hedge up her way." It's like God is causing a maze to develop. And there, there is only one way through the maze, and the one way through the maze is going to lead them back to God. And so he is going to, in fact, give them what he requires of them. So this quotation from Hosea is all the more important in this respect that it's anticipating the very passage in which it occurs is looking to this, the unrepented sinfulness of Israel that he's going to save. That's astonishing to me. And God has already begun saving unrepentant Israelites. 
by bringing them, giving them what he requires of them, I will betroth you to me in, in justice and in loyal love, he says. And when you use that, la- that language, betroth you to me in, in Hebrew, it's, it's expressing something like paying the bride price. You're, you're, you're giving the family what they need, are you with me, so that they can return. So God is going to grant to them what he required of them. That's astonishing to me. And, and this would be the Apostle Paul too, folks. I, I mentioned to you in chapter 9 of uh, Acts, you have Paul's uh, conversion, yes? Chapter 8, he's introduced as the man who is ravaging the church. I think it's in chapter 12, you have the other persecutor, Herod, who is ravaging the church. In chapter 9, God saves one of the ravagers. In chapter 12, he judges with death, the other one. Are you with me here? So, how does God deal with the enemies of the church? Some of them he saves. And all the more so if some of those whom he saves are from Israel. But then also, look at verse 24 again. It's not only of the Jews. It's also of the Gentiles. So we were the ones who were not my people. We were the ones who were not beloved. But in the place where it was said to them, uh, you are not my people, there they will be called the sons of God. Um, And then verse 27, Isaiah cries out about Israel. Even if the number of the sons of Israel were as, as great as the sands of the sea, the remnant will be saved. Now, all of you know what a remnant is, yes? Is it, uh, we, we don't know from the word, we don't know what it's, whether it's large or small, but generally speaking, we think small. The remnant will be saved. Um, Four, uh, verse 28, um, this is a hard verse for me to read. Um, uh, for the Lord will do a thing upon the earth, bringing it to an end and cutting it off. This isn't going to go on forever. This hardening of Israel is not going to go on forever. Um, Indeed, uh, as Isaiah also says, if the Lord of hosts had not left us us a seed, we would have been. What does we would have been mean? Yeah, but, but, but what does it imply? It's not the case. We would have been like Sodom. We would have been like Gomorrah. So the, the, the very Old Testament from which we learn that God's judgment must fall upon Israel, also, even in the very contexts in which he uh, affirms and proclaims judgment against Israel, in those very texts, he talks about delivering them. Um, did I tell you about reading from Jeremiah in chapel uh, Last okay, uh, several years ago when when I was in Memphis. In fact, it was quite quite a while ago. It was over thirty years ago. We were in chapel at, in at the college, and um, I have allergies, <clears throat> and my throat gets clogged up, and I can't sing very well. It in fact it makes my work my throat sore, and so I have to save it for <laughs> speaking. But I was not singing there in chapel that day, and I was reading in the Bible, in fact, reading the latter chapters of the book of Jeremiah, which are all doom and gloom for Israel. 
And as I, as I read that, I had come through, you, you, know, you know there are 52 chapters in Jeremiah. Are you aware of that? Yes? No? Well, now you know, okay? 52 chapters. There are only about four that have any substantial hope. Uh, 30, 31, 32, 33. Uh, but I want you to notice something. If I'm in the latter chapters of Jeremiah, I've already come through 30, 31, 32, 33. Yes? And, and as I was reading all this hopelessness for Israel, all I could do was keep in mind New Covenant passage, Jeremiah 31. Days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new a new covenant with the tri with the, the uh, house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their forefathers. Are you with me? And I was I was thinking, how sinful are these people? How worthy of judgment are they? And yet God has already planned to save them. And I was weeping. I was just I, it, it just came over me, and I couldn't stop. And one of the students came <laughs> over to me and put his arm around me and he said, we're praying for you, brother. <laughs> I, don't, <laughs> I don't know what he thought was going on in my life. Confront, confronting some sin that I've committed. No, I was, I was just overwhelmed with the goodness of God. What kind of God do we serve? Who can pronounce judgment on a people? Deserved judgment on a people when he knows he's going to save them. That's astonishing. So this is, even though God has been hardening Israel, Second uh, Corinthians talks about this, the veil lies upon the heart of Israel in the reading of the law, and it's only removed in Christ. This, this same kind of judgment is elsewhere in Paul's writings. So this is part of the answer. Does Israel have any role in the promise of God? Well, yes, but judgment is part of that role. But we come to the second part of the answer now. So the first part of the answer, does Israel have any role in the plan of God? Well, yeah, judgment. But also, you have to understand why the judgment came. So in chapter 10, well, let me see, I've, I've uh, not gone far enough here yet. In chapter 10, uh, uh, I'm sorry, 9.30 to 10.21, the second part of the answer is, um, Israel rejected God's plan for salvation. They rejected God's righteousness. Uh, so as we go, let's get into that, verses 30 to 33. What then shall we say? Is there, I'm sorry, uh, that the Gentiles who were not pursuing righteousness have achieved righteousness? Though it's the righteousness of faith. And Israel, while pursuing the law of righteousness, did not reach the law. And why? Because it was not by faith, but as it were by works. They stumbled at the stone of stumbling, as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and the one who believes in him will not be ashamed. So here, verses 30 to 33, Thus the, the Gentiles by faith received what Israel rejected, stumbling over Christ, um, uh, the, the rock in, in unbelief in God's uh, righteousness. There are several things that we need to say with reference to these verses. It's astonishing. 
in, in the way Paul words it, he is astonished. What shall we say? That the Gentiles achieved righteousness? Though they weren't seeking it? Do you have seeking it? What do you have there? Pursuing? 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 It's a fascinating word. i got to spend just a minute with it. So, so it's used twice there in verses uh, 30 and 31. Uh, pursuing righteousness, pursuing the law of righteousness. So what is it this word pursue means? Well, it can mean to, to run or to hasten, but it can also mean to persecute, to chase as in battle. The, the Jews were chasing after. <laughs> they, were, they were really working, trying to catch righteousness. But it was the wrong kind. But brothers and sisters... The kind of righteousness they were seeking, they they thought they got out of the Old Testament, and we will see that they did get it out of the Old Testament. We haven't gotten to this point in the in the in the passage yet, but chapter ten, some of our favorite passages are here, but we haven't even paid much attention to them. What they were pursuing was what we also think we find in the Old Testament. They thought the Old Testament taught you have to obey to be blessed by God. Yes or no? But I've hardly ever heard a sermon from the Old Testament that didn't teach that you have to obey to be blessed by God. Most sermons out of the Old Testament talk about, well, you know, you got to obey. An elder's wife in Memphis came up to me after church, after Sunday school one morning. She said, well, Jim, I believe that we're saved by grace, but after we're saved, don't we have to obey? And there, that, that, that's a question that needs more nuancing than it, than it appears to. Surely the answer is yes. There's a whole movement that began in about 1977. There's a whole movement in New Testament scholarship now. It's called the New Perspective on Paul. And they are saying this very thing. Uh, you are you're saved by grace, but you've got to have enough works for God to justify you at the, at the judgment seat of Christ. There's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. And the emphasis always falls in the and obey. Does it not? Would that be a part of or parallel Lordship salvation? Lordship salvation is, no, in fact, it's um, probably hostile to Lordship salvation. And, and most folks in Lordship would probably be hostile to this view. But it's, it's, not, un, un, uh, it's not dissimilar problem with lordship is the way it's said. I had a course in seminary called senior theology. We called it senior interrogation. Uh, oh gosh. Charles Ryrie taught it and uh, he would say, Mr. Hulkenberg, please uh, stand and, and defend Bultmann's view of, of, uh, of inspiration. And uh, I found out, since he didn't assign seats, I found out that if he started down here th- this time, He'll start back there next time. And if I just rotate with him, <laughs> it just took me a couple of weeks to figure this out. I, I learned a lot about how to survive in school. <laughs> One of the ways is never get called on. Don't ever get called on. I don't want to get called on. But, but uh, um, he said, at some point this semester, we were reviewing all of our theology in, in 
he was putting us on the spot. He was kind of getting us ready for ordination uh, 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 interrogation. Uh, but he said, at some point this semester, you're going to think all we're doing is, re- is wrangling over definitions. <clears throat> said that is exactly what we're doing. All theology is definition. Everything there is that you, that you need to know about theology is that it's about defining things properly. And if I define them improperly, I'll end up making a, a, not only a mess of my own thought, but I will actually lead people astray. And since people who are taught tend to go farther with the ideas than the people who teach, Calvin was not a Calvinist, and Arminius was not an Arminian. He, Arminius was actually a Calvinist. Um, and Rush Dooney is a, an Armenian Calvinist. <clears throat> hmm? No, he's from Armenia. So he, <laughs> he believes you can't lose your salvation, but he's from Armenia, so he's an Armenian Calvinist. So there is a difference between Armenian and Armenian. Are you with me here? So, so the, the, the larger issue is um, here that the, um, the, the lordship people will say things differently depending on who you're talking to. Obviously, not all of us say things slightly differently. But, but some will say, unless you have growing obedience in your life, you're probably not saved. Some of them will say you're not saved. Um, if, they, if they are saying that, then folks... I got real problems with that, and here's why. Uh, if every Christian was born into a church family in which the church was perfectly healthy and they were really teaching the grace of God, it would be the case, no doubt, that every believer would be growing in obedience. There would be stumbles, there would be problems, but people would be healthy. Yes? Right? But how many Christians are, are born into perfectly healthy churches? In fact, how many Christians are born into healthy churches? Very frequently it's unhealthy. The church I grew up in was an unhealthy church. There were only about five basic messages. You need to get saved. You need to rededicate your life. You shouldn't get involved in immorality, which is defined primarily as smoking, dancing, um, uh, premarital sex and what was the other? Drinking, drinking. Thank you. You know, it came to me at the same time you said it, brother. Uh, um, and you got to tithe. There was there was another one. You got you got to um, get involved in evangelism. And some of them said, if you're not a successful evangelist, you're not you're not uh, serving God right. Um, but my pastor said, if, you're, if you don't love people, don't, don't do evangelism because they all pick it up. Well, I didn't love people. They, they scared me. I didn't want to... I was terrified of people. Uh, trouble is, pretty much everything you do is with people. And that was... I had a hard growing up in that regard. They, so, so I knew there was something dreadfully wrong. I, I prayed, Lord, give me love for people. And he never did. Um... Fred? Jim, the mantra I always heard for lordship was if Christ is not Lord yeah. of all, he is not yeah. Lord at all. If, if, if that's the case, uh, 
then when is Christ ever Lord of all your life? As my pastor in Memphis said, it wouldn't be until we're, we're, we're dead and in heaven with Christ that he's Lord of all. So I wouldn't even be saved. No one would be saved. Um, it's, it is asking for sanctification before sanctification can have its work. In Hebrews chapter 5, there is that uh, important statement um, about Melchizedek. We have much to say and much that's hard to explain since you have become dull in hearing. For when, because of the time, you ought to be... Now I've lost it. What? Hmm? Teachers. You ought to be teachers. You have need for someone to, to lay again for you the foundation of the first principles of Christ. You become such as need milk and not solid food. When? Because of the time. We don't, we don't give people time to grow. When, a, when Paul calls us in 1 Corinthians 3, babies. Uh, when I came to you, I, was, I could not speak to you as to, um, as to spiritual, but as to fleshly people as to babies in Christ. Babies, are they fully human? Yes. You're sure? Yes. <laughs> are they able, do they have the capacity for walking? No. Do, no, you didn't hear, I didn't say can they walk. I, do they have the capacity for walking? Do they have the capacity for speech? Yes. Yes. Then why don't they? If you're born... Why don't you speak and walk, dumb kid? <laughs> Worthless. Hmm? Not, mature. Not mature enough. It takes time. And uh, until that time has passed, we can't know that, that they're going to be able to speak and, and walk. Yes? Those things happen. Am I, am I right? Mm-hmm. Well, then, why should we not use these metaphors to help us understand, folks, if it takes 20 to 30 years for a human body to fully mature. And we don't think that there's something wrong with taking 20 to 30 years to mature. How long is it going to take for a child of God to mature? Maybe 40, 50, 60 years. Does this make sense? So why would you expect the kind of obedience these people seem to be affirming in an immature person, in an immature believer. Does, does God cut Abraham off in Egypt when he lied about his wife? Why not? That's sin in your life, boy. You're probably not even saved. Amen? And he kept it up for 25 years and probably 40 So is Abraham the father of the faith or not? Yes. When he does, it doesn't pass the test of lordship. Um, I got real problems with them. They're on the other extreme from the new perspective people. So the so the issue for us is to to be very careful here. the The Jews were pursuing righteousness, but it was not the righteousness of faith. New perspective people says there is no righteousness of faith. It's a righteousness of obedience. I don't know, it just doesn't look like what I'm reading here. Verse 31, Israel, though hunting down the law of righteousness, did not achieve the law. And why? Because it was not by faith, but as it were by works. They said, no, no, no. 
They didn't believe in righteousness by works. They believed they were in the covenant because of the grace of God. Yeah, but you can't stay in the covenant without works. Are you with me? So, uh, have you heard the name, if you watch any uh, 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 television shows about the New Testament, uh, frequently there's a fellow named N.T. Wright or uh, Tom, Tom Wright will show up. He's a, oh boy, he is a, a fabulous scholar and an incredible communicator. Man, is he a good communicator. But he is a strong defender of the historicity of Christ and his resurrection and so on. Uh, was the Bishop of Durham in England. Uh, fascinating role that he had. Uh, he's retired from that now and is back to teaching. But uh, he's one of the pr- primary proponents of the new perspective on Paul. And he said, no, nobody ever believed that you were righteous by your works in Judaism. Looks like Paul thought so. If Tom Wright is, is right then Paul is wrong. If Paul is right, then right is wrong. <laughs> uh, so, so, so the point is, Israel has been hunting something like a soldier in battle hunting snipers. He's out hunting them, the Israelite is. What he's hunting for is the law of righteousness. They can't even achieve the law. But the Gentiles, while hunting nothing, Gentiles in Paul's day were taken up with either politics or philosophy or idols. And the idols always figured in in everything except for for philosophy. Uh, if you had a if you had a business meeting, it was going to be at a temple and it was going to be a sacrificial meal uh, after making sacrifice to the gods. The Roman Empire believed that it was held together by its religion. And if you, if you rejected the religion, you were rejecting the empire. Thus the cult of, of Caesar worship. And by the time Paul is now writing these books, then we get this, uh, this growing movement of Caesar worship in Rome or in the, in the empire. The, the point is that, that uh, uh, Gentiles weren't even thinking about righteousness. Anybody who was thinking about righteousness was thinking about living a worthy lifestyle and you had to live up to the, to, to the standards of the Roman Empire. And, and once you lived up to those standards, you were a righteous person and that was all that was important. We weren't thinking about any kind of righteousness that was worthwhile. But we got, but we got the righteousness of faith. Israel, seeking the righteousness of God, rather of the law, as Paul will shortly say, rejected the righteousness of God. Now how can that be? Who gave the law? Terry, I think you said it. God, yeah. I didn't know what meant, but I thought that probably meant God. <laughs> I try to read lips because I can't hear so well. <laughs> but, but if God gave the law and you achieved the righteousness of the law then you have achieved the righteousness of God. But that's not what Paul says. Look at chapter 10, verse 1. Verses 1 to 3. Brothers, my heart's desire and my plea to God for them is for salvation. I testify to them that they have a zeal for God, 
but not according to knowledge. For, and here he explains it, for not knowing the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to to the righteousness of God. You can pursue the law. You can pers- and, and this, by the way, chapter 10 is very important on a variety of levels. But one of them is, it's, it's Paul's last argument in Romans for righteousness by faith. Everything else will be application from this, virtually from this point on. So he's, here is his final word in Romans on how we're righteous with God. They're, they're ignorant of the righteousness of God. That raises a serious question. Why are they ignorant? And that's going to be verses uh, uh, 5 through a great part of the chapter. Um, Why are they ignorant of the law of God? Here are some options. Maybe they didn't know about the righteousness of God because the church reads the law of Moses as if obedience brings blessing. Yes? Yes? And the synagogue reads Moses as if obedience brings blessing. wonder if somebody got it wrong. And if we got it wrong, how? Paul's answer is going to be, they didn't listen to the prophets. If faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God, is it the case that they didn't hear? Look there in that famous verse um, verse uh, uh, what verse is it uh, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God uh, there it is verse uh, 17 do notice that's, that that's verse 17 um, from this point on he's going to be asking the question well maybe they never heard yes are you with me here is, is that, that, do you realize that's his question? Um, uh, maybe, they, look at verse 18. What, how, does, uh, how does verse 18 begin in your, in your Bible? But, but I say, yeah, but I yeah it, it's, a, it's real convoluted in Greek. It isn't that they didn't hear, hear is it? No, they did hear, and it's hard to answer that question because you, uh, yeah, yeah, uh, which is it? Yes or no? I don't know. It's it's complicated, but it expects a a negative answer. They didn't hear. No, they heard. Then why this ignorance? Go back to verse uh, three. Why this ignorance, folks? Watch this in the in the Bible. When people are ignorant, it is self chosen and willful. You refuse to pay attention to what has been revealed. Okay? What you looking at me that way for, Rick? Well, I'm just thinking that, that there's so many factors that the Jews of this time had that we don't have now. Yeah. I mean, we talked about this. It's only been the past 200 years that people took the Scripture literally. Before that, it was all analogous or they yeah. but But the Jews... Had been through six, seven, eight hundred years of domination, mm-hmm. uh, starting with Alexander and, mm-hmm. and then the Maccabees that yeah. fell, and now the Pharisees and the scribes are really fighting against the Hellenists, mm-hmm. and they're exalting the law, mm-hmm. and they're saying 
we've got to protect the law. Mm -hmm. And that seems to me that that's how they got into the extreme. <sighs> they got into it a whole lot earlier than that. Well, you can go way back to Moses' time yeah. and see the disobedience, but yeah. the people of this time, yeah. I would think that they're still in that mode where they're fighting Rome, they're fighting the Greeks, yes. they're fighting the Hellenists. And they're saying, you're trying to destroy what most... But they gave up the one most important thing that, that would have solved their entire problem. We say, and you said uh, in the last 500 years, 600 years from the time of the Babylonian captivity, and it's, it's important that we bring that up. Folks, we, we have said for how long? I've heard it since I was a kid. Israel, before the Babylonian captivity in the 6th century BC, was an idolatrous people. They kept turning back to idolatry. You go back to Judges 10. They're, they keep going back to idolatry. Um, I'm not going to save you this time. Go cry out to your gods that you worship. Let them save you. I'm not going to save you. But after he turned them over to the judgment, he, the text in Judges 10 says, the Lord was moved by their misery. And he, and he, and he delivered them, sent them a deliverer. Um... So idolatry marks Israel up to the Babylonian captivity, but we say not afterwards. They learned that you can't have idolatry. I think that's wrong. What they learned was to get rid of the gross forms of idolatry, no sticks and rocks to bow down to. But they substituted a different, far more subtle, far more dangerous idolatry, and it was an idolatry of the law. I've asked you, I asked my class in Memphis when I was teaching there at church. In fact, the same elder's wife who asked, after we uh, are saved, don't we have to obey? I said, do you know Colossians 2.6? She said, I ought to. I, was, I so appreciated that answer. That was such a good answer. She said, what is it? I said, as therefore you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. You, you receive him by obedience? Well, in a fashion, your faith is obedience. Yes? But I don't receive him by keeping rules. Then I don't live by keeping rules either. Are you with me here? Then what, what alternative idolatry did Israel accept after the Babylonian captivity? They're not serving God, they're serving the law. Why is it, and this is the question I have asked you and the class in Memphis, uh, and we've already been down this road so you'll know the answer this time. Uh, did Saul of Tarsus love God with all his heart, soul, and strength? No, because if he did, he didn't, he would have, Jesus says this, if you had known my father, you would have known me. But because they persecute Jesus, they don't know the Father. They have no love for God, which is the fundamental of the whole law. How can you keep the law unless you love God with all your heart, soul, and strength? Well, they don't even do that. What then do they love? What did Paul, Saul of Tarsus love? He was terrified of giving up on his obedience. If Jesus is the Messiah, there, there is some slight evidence, and I wouldn't want to make a huge point out of this, but there's some slight evidence 
that the rabbis, some of the rabbis taught that when Messiah comes, the law would be done away. And Jesus cannot be Messiah. Why not? Well, he was crucified. And that's what an enemy of God has as his final, final condemnation. Are you with me? So how can this man be Messiah? He breaks the Sabbath. He teaches people to break the Sabbath. How can he be the Messiah? Must be Paul's answer or Saul's answer. And if that's his, if, if that's his point of view, then he has to persecute. Uh, read sometime Deuteronomy 13 where uh, the, the issue is what do you do with false teachers, false prophets? Well, you stone them, but how do you know a false prophet? They don't speak according to the to the to the prior revelation. Yes? So Paul Saul is doing exactly what he ought to do. What you do when you find a city that has or a town that has accepted a false prophet, you go in and examine and find out if they have been following this false prophet, and if they have, you're to kill all the people in the town. You're to take everything in the town and heap it up in a, all the belongings. Keep it up in the town square and burn it all and leave the town a permanent waste so that all Israel will fear and not go after false prophets. So what's Paul doing? What is Saul of Tarsus doing on the way to Damascus? He's going to bring people to judgment for following a false prophet. Because if, if Jesus is Messiah, then my whole Pharisaic way of life is wrong. Rick, I'm sorry, I put you off so long. Well, I'm sorry. I was just wondering, you know, Paul was a, a very bright Saul yeah. and Paul were yeah. both bright. Right. You really wonder why Saul of Tarsus wouldn't ever have asked the question, how good is good enough? <laughs> so why don't they ask that question? How good is good enough? Well, he thought he had achieved it. Turn to Philippians chapter 3. Um, he didn't have to ask the question. He had achieved it. Philippians chapter 3, uh, he's giving his qualifications as, a, uh, as an apostle, effectively. Uh, so verse 4, even though I have more confidence even in the flesh, if anyone is, it, it seems to be confident in the flesh, I more circumcised on the eighth day of the tribe of Israel, of the uh, uh, nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as far as, 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 far as the law is concerned, a Pharisee, as far as zeal is, is, is concerned. Here's that same word, chasing <laughs> the church. Um, as far as righteousness, which is by the law, is concerned, I was what? Blameless. Now, how could he say that? Surely he had broken the law at some point. Yeah, he had, but he made the sacrifices that were appropriate, and, he, and it took care of everything. Everything's fine. I got animal sacrifices. What do I need a human sacrifice for? A thing that God prohibited. But what things were gained to me, these things I have come to count for the sake of Christ as lost, as loss. But indeed, I count everything as loss for the sake of the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things, and I'm, I count them as refuse, so that I might gain Christ and be found in Him, not having my own righteousness, which is by the law. 
See, the thing that Paul had to give up was his law righteousness. That was the, the one thing he couldn't give up. That was his only hope. His hope was not in God. His hope was in his obedience. If I obey enough, God owes me. And if God owes me, then i got to get what he owes. But if God owes, then it's not by grace. Fred? Jim, it's unfortunate this very week I had to attend the funeral of a Jewish relative here in Dallas. And I saw right there in the service mm-hmm. the pursuing of the law, yeah. the, there was the Orthodox, uh, the um, rituals of the law, and the, just right here in our midst today. Mm-hmm. I yeah. Well, when my dad's stepfather died uh, back in the late 70s, uh, he was a member of a particular organization whose name shall remain unmentioned. <laughs> but they came and did their final service for him. And they knew he was in heaven because he had kept all the law. And he was a deacon in a Baptist church. Um, so, verse 3, Romans 10.3, they are ignorant of the, of the righteousness of God because they have willfully chosen to be ignorant of it. Folks, it's astonishing how your psychology works into your uh, reading of the Bible. I don't see things because I'm not prepared for them. I don't see things because I don't want to see them. I remain willfully ignorant at key points. And I don't even know where it is. I don't know where my blind spots are. This is one of the reasons I teach, so that I'll be confronted with my blind spots when people ask questions. Are you with me here? Um, the, uh, so their ignorance is not a disability. Well, they just didn't. You know, they didn't have the opportunities that we had. They had a hard life. Yeah, but everybody has a hard life in one way or another. There was an old Excedrin commercial. Uh, no headache is small when it's yours. was kind of the, the, the zinger. And folks, if we start talking about trouble that would keep us from Christ, then all of us have some of that. Yes? But this is willful. Watch this in Scripture. As you read through the Bible again, watch for statements of ignorance and realize that in all, I think it's virtually every reference to ignorance in Scripture, it's self-chosen and it is, uh, it is intentional. You don't want to know what you are ignorant of. This is not, well, they, you know, they didn't have written, they didn't have the Bible like we do. Yeah, but what they had, they didn't believe either. Are you with me? Now, verse 4 begins the next section, but it is a good, also good uh, closing for this, this, next, uh, this pre- previous paragraph. For the reason they didn't know, the reason they were ig- uh, willfully ignorant, is that Christ is the end of the law, um, as far as righteousness is concerned, to, to everyone who believes. Um, hope I got that out right. Yes, I did. Christ is the end of the law. The new perspective people say, well, no, it means goal of the law. Well, it's goal too. But once you've reached your goal, why do NFL runners stop running 
national anthem. But. No, 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 no. If they're, if they're running with the ball, they're not. It's not the national anthem. We don't need to go there. <laughs> why, when when a runner is running, why does he intentionally stop? He reached the goal line, and you just you stop. You slow down. Some of them run so fast they run into the into the into the seats. But but you stop because there's no reason to run anymore. There's no no advantage gained by continuing to run unless you're Forrest Gump. Run, Forrest, run. So uh, so if this is the goal, it's still also the end. So what they didn't want was Jesus. What unfortunately many of us want is Jesus and our obedience. But I have to make a choice. Is it my obedience, Jesus plus something, or is it Jesus entirely? It's it's past time to to stop. So, uh, we, yeah, it's past time to stop. So let me close, and then we can talk after uh, the group, uh, Father. If what I'm saying is true, then Jesus is the be-all and end-all of our life. If it's not true, then Jesus is a helper, but we have a lot of work to do. So, Father, deliver us from Jesus as a helper to a Jesus who is all. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen. Yeah. Talking about the 